Bibles this morning, if you would please, to Matthew chapter 10, and we are privileged to be able to return to our study of Matthew's gospel today. Last week we took a break because of Easter, and we looked into the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but this morning, once again, I want us to look in the beginning of chapter 10, and we have been studying for the past few weeks the ending of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, and the subject that we've been talking about is evangelism. To evangelize is to preach the gospel of Christ, and both the word gospel and evangelize came from, come from the same root word in the Greek, with, which is euangelion, same word, and in the earliest translations of the Bible into English, a Anglo-Saxon word was used to translate you, Angelion, and that was the word Godspell. And Godspell actually had the meaning as of the story about God. Now, that was later shortened to gospel, and although we have retained or not retained all of the original meanings of that of the Anglo-Saxon word, yet we still retain this part of it, that the story about God is good news. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is euangelion. Now, salvation, of course, is the most important news that a person could ever receive. There are people that wonder about life, people are concerned about, and they're looking for the meaning of life. Why are we here? Where are we going? What is the purpose of our lives? And all of that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of those questions, I believe, are answered by the good news of the gospel. God does have a purpose for this world and a purpose for us, his people, in this world. You know that I'm often fond of saying that our purpose is to glorify God. Everything in the world, everything that God created was for that purpose, to give him glory. The psalmist said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. I think that is an amazing thing to look at that scripture and say, the heavens declare the glory of God. But when you take the crowning work of God's creation, which is man, the highest achievement that God had in the creation was the creation of man, and yet man has to be taught to glorify God. We don't naturally glorify God. In our lost condition, we are the enemies of God. We are hostile towards God, and our sinful hearts will never declare the glory of God unless our hearts are changed. And the only way that a person's heart is going to be changed is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the ninth verse of chapter, or or excuse me, the 35th verse in chapter 9, the scripture says, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus brought the good news of salvation, the good news that he is the Savior, and men and women that trust him, that are converted, that believe in him for salvation, have their hearts changed, and then they do what all people were created to do, and that is to give glory to God. And so they achieve the purpose for their lives, giving God glory. Well, Jesus preached the gospel. And his ministry was to preach, to teach, and to heal. His ministry was to show the love and compassion of God. It was to show that God cares for people, that God does not want anyone to have to suffer his wrath and punishment for sin. And make no mistake about this, God is a holy God, God is a compassionate God, God is a loving God. The Word of God says that he is plenteous in mercy and grace. 
But the Word of God also teaches us that God is a just God. And God punishes lawbreakers. Just as we expect that people that break our laws are going to be punished, so God says that anyone who breaks his law will also be punished. And the sad thing about that is, folks, that every one of us has broken God's law. And that is why we need the gospel of Christ. We don't have to be punished if we believe that Christ was punished for us. The innocent dying for the guilty in order that our sins could be forgiven. And because our sins have been forgiven by the cross, we do not have to suffer the wrath of God. And that is the euangelion. That is the gospel of Christ. Well, you can see from that that Christ could not continue in an endless ministry. Uh, Christ did have to go to the cross. He couldn't continue to preach the gospel. He actually had to become the gospel. That's his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He had to go to the cross. He had to die, rise from the grave, in order that the gospel could be put into effect. And so since Jesus could not continue to do the preaching, he had to teach others to give the gospel. Well, how has that gospel survived for these 2,000 years? Well, we find it right here, and we can trace it back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, when there were 12 men who were called to be apostles. Apostle means one who is sent. It actually means, means someone who's been sent on a mission with the authority of the one who sends. And this is what Jesus did. He chose these 12 men, and he gave them the authority to preach the gospel. He sent them out to reach the world. And, and, if you, and suppose for a moment that you were able to go to heaven, and you were able to speak to Christ right after he went to the cross, right after he arose from the tomb, right after he ascended back to heaven, and you were able to speak to Jesus, and you were to ask him, how are you going to keep this thing alive? How are you going to keep the gospel effective throughout the world? How are people going to hear the gospel of Christ? Well, he would say, I chose some men. I chose some people to give my gospel to others, and I expected that they would tell people, and then those people would tell people, and those people would tell people, and those people would tell people, and, people tell people, and so my gospel would be in the world until I come again. And I think that you could see from that that the success of that plan would be dependent largely in the very beginning on those 12 men. If they don't do what they're supposed to do, and if they break, if they break down, if their faith fails, if they don't give the message of Christ, if those 12 men did not do that, then there is no gospel. It stops. Everything is broken. And so the first links in that chain have to be strong links. And when Jesus chose these 12 men, they weren't very strong at all. They had to be made strong by his power. So he instructed them, he empowered them. And when he was through graciously working in them, they were too strong with God's power to break. They were apostles. They were sent to accomplish a mission. They were men on a mission. And because of them, there are believers in this room today. You believe the gospel of Christ, and I am able to preach the gospel, the euangelion, because these 12 men were faithful to the task that God had given. Now, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to learn a little bit about these men and their mission, and we're going to take some time to do a biographical sketch on these apostles. I'm not going to be very detailed about it. Uh, for more information on this, there's some good books that I could recommend to you if you're interested in that. Uh, and for our study, I'm using partially 
uh, John MacArthur's book, 12 Ordinary Men. And we're not going to finish this today. Uh, There's not a great deal that's on your outline. We're going to keep adding to this outline as we go for the next few weeks. And we're going to talk about these 12 men. These are men who are messengers of Christ, and we're going to learn what it takes to be a messenger. We're going to learn about the kind of people that God can use to give that message. And you can take comfort in this as you look at these men, that they were just ordinary guys. They were just ordinary people. And we're going to look at how God takes ordinary people. And you'll be amazed at how he could take this bunch and make anything out of them at all. And so you can take comfort in this, that if you think, I can't be used in God's service. I just don't have any ability. There's nothing that I can do. You can take comfort in this because Jesus was able to change them into men that could give his gospel and be true servants and true messengers of the truth. Now, let's read our text today, beginning in the first verse of chapter 10. Stand with me in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse number 1. And when he had called unto them his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And as ye go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word today. Help us, Lord, as we look into the scripture and we begin to learn about these men and the mission that you gave them. And Lord, I pray that we might be the same kind of people who would continue the mission that was given to these apostles to tell others the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The twelve apostles. Who are these men? And I suppose the first question that we would have to ask and get an answer to is simply the question of their names. Number one on your outline today is the first messengers. Everybody has a name that's given to them that identifies them. If I'm going to speak about to you or speak to someone else about you, I'll give that person your name, and they'll understand who you are by hearing your name. Well, as we look at the names of the apostles throughout the Scriptures, we wonder, who are these men? Because there are variations in the list. You find some different names as you look through the Scriptures. Three times, all 12 of these men are listed. And in one list, there is a uh, list of 11 that are named. Uh, We have this list in Matthew chapter 10 where it gives us Simon, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James of Alphaeus, Lebius, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot. In Mark chapter 3, there is also a list of these 12 disciples. In Luke chapter 6, we have another list of these men. And there we find two different names that are listed from the list that we have here. That is Simon Zelotes and Judas of James. And then in Acts chapter 1, the list is also given. And there the list is minus one name, that's Judas Iscariot, 
because by that time he had betrayed the Lord and he had gone and hung himself, killed himself, and so he's not mentioned with that list of the apostles. And in that list, we find no other variations except Peter is not listed with his other name, which is Simon. And then in addition to that, there are other times when we read about these apostles in the Scriptures, and there are other names that are given to them. So sometimes we might not understand just exactly who are these 12 guys and which, one are, which ones are they, because sometimes the lists are different. So I've prepared for you on your listening sheet and on the screen today a list of the 12 apostles and the different names that are given to them. Now, on the top of the list is Simon, also known as Peter. Then, it's, then we have Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. And sometimes in Scripture, you'll see him listed as Nathaniel. That's the same as Bartholomew. Thomas, who is also given another name, which is Didymus, which is a word that means that he is a twin. He had a twin brother. Matthew is known as Levi also. Then there's James of Alphaeus. Then you have Lebius, and he has two other names, Thaddeus, and also known as Judas of James. Then there's Simon the Canaanite, who's also known as Simon Zelotes. So if you see that other name given in Scripture, you know he's talking about Simon the Canaanite. And then, of course, there's Judas Iscariot. So these are the 12 men that Jesus chose. All of these men are Galileans, except one, and that's Judas Iscariot. He came from Judea. Now, it's also interesting for us to note as we look at these names in Scripture that whenever their names are mentioned together, they always appear in the same groups of four. There are three groups of four. And you always see at the top of the list Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And always at the top of that list is Peter. Now, these four men that are at the top of the list are not always listed in the same order, but they always appear in the very beginning of the list. Another interesting part of this is that the groups of four are arranged so that the ones that are closest to Jesus are the ones that we have more information about. And then as you go further down the list, there's less information that's given. And with the exception of Judas Iscariot, who always appears at the bottom of the list, the last four names on the list, we know nothing about those particular apostles. There's more said about the person who is at the top of the list and the one who is at the bottom of the list than all the other men that were apostles. Top of the list, of course, is Peter, and at the bottom of the list is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord. Of the four names that are mentioned at the top, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Peter was the closest of all to Jesus. In that list, Peter, James, and John are the closest to him, with Andrew being just a little bit further out. And as I said, Peter is always mentioned first. There are at least two sets of brothers that are in the list. Peter and Andrew were brothers. James and John were brothers. There are some also who believe that Matthew was the brother of James of Alphaeus, and possibly they had a third brother in this group that was Simon Zelotes. But the only place where Simon Zelotes is connected with James of Alphaeus, the translators have actually inserted the word brother, so we're not quite sure if they were actually all brothers. So that kind of gives you an idea of of who these men are by name. So when you read about them, you don't get too confused about who they are. Some were closer to Jesus, and with the exception of Judas, who was 
there for God's special purpose. Each of them was given the very same commission. All of them were important, and every single one of them was an unbreakable link in that first chain of gospel preachers. Now, what we're going to do is look at these men. And the first thing that we would note about them, and this will occupy us for a while as we look at all of these different names and who they were, is that they were faulty men. These are faulty men. In many cathedrals around the world, you'll find the 12 apostles in stained glass windows. And the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, they're the 12 apostles in beautiful stained glass windows. When we visited Israel, there's a church in Capernaum that is a Greek Orthodox church, and there are the 12 apostles that are put there in stained glass windows. Also in Detroit, Michigan, there's a Baptist church that has all 12 of the apostles in stained glass windows. In addition to the 12 apostles, they also have George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Martin Luther King. Now, somehow I think there's a little bit disparity between the last three names and the first 12. But those men are in stained glass windows in that church. And so in our mind's eye, this is kind of the picture that we get of these apostles, that these are men that are extraordinary, they are supersized saints, they ought to be in stained glass windows, they're not really ordinary people at all. But I'm sure that if you could speak to any one of these 12 men today, these apostles, there's not a one of them that would say, I was so uncommon, I was so gifted, I was so special, I was so different from you that you need to idolize me. You need to make statues of me. You need to put me in stained glass windows and you ought to bow reverently every time that you speak my name. There's not one of those men that would do that because this was a motley crew. They were brash. Some of them were assuming. They were quick-tempered. They Sometimes at least two of them were considered to be traitors. Matthew and Simon Zelotes were at opposite ends of the political spectrum. You put those two guys in a room together and they would kill each other, if not for Jesus. Now it is true that Jesus promised that these men would sit on 12 thrones judging Israel in the millennial kingdom. It's true, as we'll see later, that they were the first building blocks of the church. It's true that they were strong links in that unbreakable chain. But it's also true they were just men. They were just ordinary guys. They were not stellar people at all, especially in the eyes of the religious elite. None of us, if we were going to start a religion, would start out with a bunch like this. They had no credibility as far as their education. They had no degrees in ministry from a seminary. There is no Bible college on any of their resumes. And even the guy that they followed was a very controversial figure, wasn't he? People were prejudiced against him from, from the, the, the religious leaders to the political leaders. Jesus was a very controversial figure. And so it really doesn't look like much of a start. You just would not start out this way. Nobody is going to predict success for this group. They were faulty men. And yet these are the men that God used. And just like them, we are faulty. Some of us have glaring faults, and there's no doubt about that. But we are also the people that God uses. God takes us. He uses us. He makes us capable through his power 
to be his witnesses and to tell other people the gospel of Christ. And if you think that you're somebody and that's why God chose you, then you're not somebody that God will use. Paul said, For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. These men started out thinking they were something. As we go through, we'll see what the kind of things that they did. But one of the things that Jesus had to do was to root out the pride in these men. And it's the same thing that, that God has to do with every one of us who is a follower of him. He has to take that pride and just wrench it completely out of our system before we're able to be, ever able to be a good witness for him. So let's look at them. Uh, and we start here with the one who's at the top of the list, and that is Peter. And Peter, I would call a natural-born leader. Peter was a natural-born leader. He's always first in the list. That's because he was the leader. You remember a kid in school that was always the one that had to be in charge? I mean, you go out for recess, and there's one kid that bosses everybody around, gets everybody into their groups, and you follow his orders whether you want to or not just because that person is a natural leader. That's the kind of guy that Peter was. This group of apostles sort of fell in behind Peter because he was going to take charge in every situation. Peter was always going to speak his mind. Peter was always going to boss people around. Whether he's right or wrong, Peter is the spokesman of this group. Peter was a fisherman by occupation. He was from the town of Bethsaida, which is a little fishing village on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you may remember that a couple of times I told you that Bethsaida was one of the most intriguing places that I visited when I was in Israel. Now, Bethsaida was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee when uh, Peter lived there, when he was born there. But you go there today, and Bethsaida is not close to the Sea of Galilee at all. And that's because the sea was a lot larger in the apostles' time. Today, they've diverted water from the Sea of Galilee to use for irrigation and for other purposes. And so the sea is smaller than it was in that time. And so Bethsaida is now located about two miles away from the Sea of Galilee. Archaeologists have only recently, uh, just not too long ago, discovered this. And that's because it is so far away. But the thing that made it so intriguing to me is that they uncovered a street in Bethsaida that they're almost certain dates back to the time of Jesus. In other words, when you walk on that narrow street, you are walking in the same place that Jesus walked. Now, that's not true every place that you go on Israel. Mounds have been built up on top of mounds. And so, for instance, when you go to Jerusalem, you're not walking on the same streets where Jesus walked. But, that, but there in Bethsaida, they uncovered that one section of that street, and they said, almost 100% sure, this is a place that Jesus walked. That was very interesting to me. Now, at the time that Peter was chosen as an apostle, he wasn't living in Bethsaida. He was in the town of Capernaum, also a fishing town there on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, as we were studying the beginning of Matthew chapter 9, I made mention of this, that the, the house where they tore off the roof and let that paralyzed man down into the presence of Jesus, it's very likely that that was Peter's house. So this is the guy that Jesus chose, and he was a leader among the apostles. A little bit later, we're going to talk about Andrew, who was his brother, and Andrew is the one who introduced Peter to Jesus. 
And that's just a wonderful story because it's the story of a family member bringing another family member to Christ. And that's important for you because I know that there are many people in our church that you have lost family members. The most logical person to lead your family to Christ is you. But do you know what that means? It means that you have to live your life every single day as a testimony in front of them. They're watching you. They're watching what you do in relation to your faith. And so you are the most likely reason that they could come to Christ because of your testimony, but they, you might also be the most likely reason they stay away from Christianity because of the way that you act. So you have to be very careful about that. Jesus chose Peter, and he was really a rough character when he chose him. There are a lot of edges that had to be smoothed off before he could be the leader that God wanted him to be. Even late in his life, Peter had to be tuned up a little by the Apostle Paul. There was a time when, when Peter was afraid that he was going to offend the Jews because he was associating with Gentiles. And Paul had to take him aside and show him that he was wrong in what he was doing. So Peter was not a perfect guy. There were problems in his life, but he was the guy that Jesus chose. Now, we could spend a lot of time talking about Peter because he was so prominent among the disciples. You can follow his career with Jesus and You find him always opening his mouth. He's always getting into situations where he had to be bailed out. Let me give you some examples of that. Remember, we talked about the woman in the end of chapter 9 who snuck into the crowd and touched Jesus, touched the hem of his garment. This woman was the one who had the issue of blood, and there the crowd was pressing around Jesus, and Jesus realized that someone had touched him, And the Bible says virtue went out of him. And so Jesus wheeled around and he said, Who is it that touched me? You know who answered that question? Peter. By reading between the lines of Scripture, that's the white spaces between the black words, reading between the lines, Peter said, Jesus, you must be crazy or something. Who touched you? Look at all these people surrounding us. I mean... All kinds of people are touching you. How could you possibly ask such a stupid question, who touched you? Peter's the one who answered the question, and he answered it in a very disrespectful manner. There was one author who said that it's insolence, it was, it was ignorance in addressing Jesus in such a way. Another time, the disciples were out on a boat when they caught, got caught in one of those frequent storms on the Sea of Galilee... And if you want to turn just a few pages over to the 14th chapter of Matthew, we can read this together. But this was a time when the big bad leader, the head cheese, had to get a lesson in humility. This is the 14th chapter, and Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000, a great miracle. And he told the disciples to get into the boat and go to the other side of the sea. Then Jesus went alone to pray. And in Matthew 14, verse 24, it says, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, or in other words, it's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? I suppose that we could debate, why did Peter get out of the boat? I think probably it's because Peter was just a little bit braver than the other disciples. They were all scared. They thought they'd saw, seen a ghost. But Peter recognized the voice of Jesus when he spoke. The others are still a little bit cautious about it. And Peter said, well, I'll show them. I'll show them I'm not afraid. I'll just get out of the boat and I'll walk to Jesus. So he said, Jesus, if that's you, if that's really you, then you tell me to come to you and I'll come over there and walk on the water and come to you. And so Peter climbed out of the boat, took a few steps, and it turned out he wasn't as brave as he thought he was. And so he began to sink. And then Jesus lifted him up. Peter's not perfect by any means. And then there's another time where Peter misunderstood Jesus' mission. And to be fair about this, none of the disciples actually understood it very well. But Peter actually tried to talk Jesus out of going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Now let's go over a couple more chapters to the 16th chapter in verse 21. And when we're through reading this, keep your Bible open to that chapter because we're going to come back to, to it and read some more. But in Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time forth Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him, took Jesus, and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned, Jesus turned, and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. You see that? Peter had the audacity to rebuke the Lord as if Jesus didn't know what he was doing. He tried to prevent Jesus from doing the very thing, the very thing that enables us to have salvation. Peter says, Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus was going there to die for lost sinners. Peter was a leader who opened his mouth up too wide, wide enough that Satan crawled right in. He tried to rebuke Jesus for going to the cross. Peter just sometimes just opened his mouth too much. And then I suppose the weakness of Peter, his fragility, his faults, all of that reached its zenith on the night that Jesus was betrayed. In the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus told about his betrayal. Then he said, where I am going, none of you can follow. And Peter said, what do you mean I can't go with you? He said, Lord, if it's necessary... I will die for you. And that's when Jesus told him that before the night was over, he would betray him three times. And as you follow that story out, you find that not only did Peter betray him three times, but he did it with bitterness, and he did it with cursing, and he loudly proclaimed, I do not know Jesus Christ. I don't have anything to do with him. That was the low point of Peter's discipleship. But you need to remember this, that Jesus knew all about him. He knew what Peter was going to do. Jesus called him out. He called him to be an, an apostle, a disciple of his. He knew every step that Peter was going to take, and he knew the kind of leader that Peter would make. 
It was Peter that betrayed him on that night. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. But it was also Peter that when Jesus had arisen from the grave, he reached out to Peter with forgiveness. And he spoke to Peter and he said to him, Simon, do you love me? And three times Jesus asked that same question, do you love me? And the effect of that was, Peter, if you really do love me, then be a shepherd to my sheep. Go and feed my sheep. And folks, that was a crystallizing moment for Peter. Then Peter began to realize what this was all about. He had betrayed Jesus Christ. And then just a few months later, this very same Peter who said, I do not know Jesus. I have nothing to do with him. He was the very same one who was taken and put into prison. And he was told not to preach the gospel of Christ. He said, I don't know Christ. But then later he was taken and Peter became such a strong person, a strong witness for Jesus Christ. He said, I don't care what you do to me. I don't care what you try to do. I cannot help but speak the things that I've seen and heard. And he was never afraid to speak about Jesus again. And so do you see how Peter was being forged into that unbreakable link? His faith was not going to fail again. Now going back to that exchange that Jesus had with Peter after the resurrection, this is what Jesus said to him. He said in John 21, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young... Thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Now let me interpret that for you. Jesus is telling Peter there that he would have many years of service to him that he would be able to preach the gospel. He would be able to go wherever he wanted to go. He would become a mighty witness. He would speak to a lot of people about salvation in Christ. But then there would come a time when he was old. He would be old and he wouldn't be able to do that any longer. But what Jesus did not mean here is that, Peter, you're going to become old and feeble so that somebody else is going to have to take care of you so you won't be able to preach. That's not what he meant at all. Notice that Jesus said, Thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. And then it says, He said those things because he was telling him what kind of death that he was going to die. And you know what that was? That was a prediction of a cross for Peter. You will stretch out your hands. And that means that he would be stretched out on a cross just like Jesus was bound to a cross, and then Peter would die a horrible death because of his faith. Now, you you, you think about that, and it sounds like the cruelest form of irony, doesn't it? That Peter had betrayed Christ, and that Jesus went to a cross, and he went there all alone. He went without Peter. And so now when, when it comes time for Peter to die, now Peter's going to have to turn around and go to a cross himself, and he will have to suffer. But it really doesn't turn out to be cruel irony at all. Jesus went to the cross alone. But when Peter went to his cross, Jesus was with him every step of the way. Here's what Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, when your father and your mother forsake you, I won't forsake you. And the effect of that is to mean 
that the very first worst thing could happen to you. What is the worst thing that you can think of? Your mom and your dad would forsake you, turn their back on you. When you need them, that your own mother and your father, your own family won't have anything to do with you. But Jesus said, Peter, I'm going to be with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. And so when Peter went to that cross, you can trust me on this, Jesus Christ was with him every step of the way. Now with Peter... He felt so unworthy to die like Jesus died that it's said that instead of being crucified in the same way that Jesus was, that Peter requested to be crucified upside down. Now that just shows you what God can do with people like this. He took an ignorant, unlearned man. He took somebody who was an unlikely candidate for ministry and he took that man and he taught him how to take over for him when Jesus himself could no longer preach. So Peter became this unbreakable link in this long line of gospel preachers of Jesus Christ, of believers in him. Peter was, was one of the first martyrs for the cross. Peter is a forerunner of those who went through the darkest periods of human history, Millions of martyrs slain for the cause of Christ, and those people would not give up their faith in Jesus. They went to their deaths proclaiming that they did know Christ. We are his followers. We do believe in him. So Peter's untrained, ignorant, and yet he was the cause of millions of conversions to the gospel of Christ, either personally or through the legacy that he left behind. And interestingly also, again, you and I are here today because of what Peter did. And, and let me show you, in, in, a, in a more particular way for us, because I, all of you, I, I'm not sure if there are any Jews here with us today, but I know all of the rest of you are Gentiles, because you're either a Jew or a Gentile. And Peter was the first one to take the gospel of Christ to Gentiles at a time when it was unthinkable, when the rest of the apostles and everybody else were thinking, Gentiles can't be saved. And yet Peter had that special vision where he took the gospel first to the Gentiles. And then he returned to tell the apostles about it. And in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, And when they heard these things, when the other apostles heard this, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. So we are here because God granted Gentiles repentance unto life, and Peter is the one that God used to crack that nut. Well, I could go on and on and talk about him. I mean, this is just a very brief survey of his life. But I want to give you just a few more scriptures about him. He did have his ups and downs. But here is one of the highlights of the upside of Peter. If you, if you have your Bible still open, it should be open to the 16th chapter of Matthew. And here we find one of the greatest confessions of faith in Scripture. So we begin reading in verse number 13, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 
And I say unto thee, also unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that is the same as saying, You are the Savior of the world. You are God. None of them could have known that. Peter could not have known that except by the same way that you and I know it today. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. I can stand here today and I can tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. I can walk out here on the streets in Ronan Park and I'll meet many people that I could say to them, Jesus is the Son of God. And actually people would agree. Yes, the Bible says Jesus is the Son of God. But did you know that that only becomes real to you and you understand the implications that Jesus is the Son of God in only one way? God must reveal it to you. And this is what he did with Peter. Now I'm going to leave you with one more passage. And this is one that was written by Peter. See, Peter not only became a verbal spokesman for the Lord, but we also have a written legacy of Peter. He spoke words, penned words, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what God said through Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and the unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass... And all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. You are born again by the word of God. The word by which the gospel is preached unto you. Gospel is preached. You know what that is? That's the verb form of euangelion, the God spell, the good news of the story about God. Peter preached that. He was an unbreakable link in God's chain. Peter was not a breakable piece of glass in a stained glass window. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, Lord, for the call into ministry And we thank you, Lord, that you've called people to be servants of yours and to give the gospel to others. And we thank you for a man named Peter that you took his life and you turned him around, you changed him and made him a great servant. And, Lord, we know that you are capable of doing that with every person in this room today. Lord, I just pray that you would take these people and you would give them the courage that Peter had through your strength to preach the gospel, to be a witness, to be a testimony to people that they meet. And may this church be a great, a great witness for you in this community, letting people know about Jesus Christ. I do pray, Lord, you'd speak to some heart today. If someone here is not saved, that you would open up their heart to the gospel of Christ, that, that you as God would reveal that to them. And Lord, we pray you'd make every one of us useful servants for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.